0: Good morning. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. This is found in your pew Bibles on page 816. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, "'I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The grass withers. The flower, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Well, let's
1: pray together, oh, Lord Jesus. Even uh, now, as we um, open Your Word, and um, as I uh, represent You and uh, we'll be teaching and uh, presuming to speak for you, and as uh, my friends here will be hearing your word and uh, presuming to form uh, and to shape an understanding of who you are, Uh, we are totally dependent upon your coming to us first. Because otherwise what I'm going to say is going to cover up truth about you and lay untruth about you before people and what my friends, my brothers and sisters and our visitors will be thinking about you and feeling towards you, that will be uh, distorted as well and inaccurate. So unless you come and bring us the true knowledge of the Father, unless you come and bring us the true knowledge of yourself by the Spirit, uh, what we do now will fail. Uh, So in every way, we bring to you ourselves now. We want to obey uh, the very command you give us in verse 28. We come to you, and we do so because we know that in you alone we'll find rest. So help us. Help uh, those who are already your people to be strengthened in their knowledge of you. And would you graciously on this day call uh, many to yourself for the first time so that this is the day of their salvation. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, it's not by any stretch uh, the most important thing that I'm going to tell you uh, today, but it is important for me to say this at the outset. Um, And that is that when I read this passage, and particularly when I read verses 28 through 30, I cannot do it, and I cannot teach uh, from these verses in a way that's detached because the most basic sense in which I stand before you this morning is not not as a preacher and not even as your pastor. It is as someone who, after 31 years as a Christian, all by God's grace, is testifying as a very grateful witness to you of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, when I read verses 28 through 30, I know that those have been my experience. Thirty, I'm now in my by God's grace, I'm now in my fourth decade as a Christian, just over the edge. And I tell you, friends, that never, never in those 31 years has Jesus not been gentle with me. Never in those 31 years has Jesus failed to teach me. Has Jesus failed to be lowly? in spirit with me to stoop in order to help me and counsel me and correct me. Never once, never once has he failed to show me that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Not once. And so I have great confidence as I uh, stand before you and hope to open up by God's grace to some a facet of these verses this morning, that this is true, that he is telling the truth. And I'm not the only one in this room for whom that's true. And if you're saying, oh, yeah, sure, Mike, 31 years, we know what a mess you are. Well, I'm not saying in those things that I'm not a mess. I'm just saying to you, of course I've failed as a Christian in countless ways. But Jesus has never failed me as my Savior. The weakness in the Christian life is not on his side of the ledger, ever. And see, I think this is the key. Remember last week when I said, because I know my experience is not unique, right? It's characteristic. There's no one who can bring a charge against Jesus Christ. No one. No one one who knows him can bring a charge against Jesus and say, you're not lowly of heart, you're not gentle. You haven't taught me. No one can say that. And this is really the key. Do you remember last week when we were uh, observing that this, you know, since the end of chapter 9, this whole section of Matthew's gospel has been about mission, right? And even this passage at the end of chapter 11 is about mission. And last week we began to think about how this pa- the three pieces of this passage uh, show us the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men in mission, whether that mission is to the neighborhoods we live in or the nations. Um, the, 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 the flow of this passage is all about mission and helps us to understand uh, what mission is about. And you know what, the, you know what I think the key is? is that for us, right, I mean, Matthew's gospel as it was originally written for Christian audience, okay? Now, it's used evangelistically, but the original audience of Matthew's gospel is the church. And so the promises at the end of, of chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Those are meant for the church to hear. In the first instance, now, if you're non-Christian, I want you to hear those promises. And just as Jesus was standing in the midst of this crowd, proclaiming these things to, to people who were not yet united to him, he was doing that physically, standing right there. He is here in the 21st century, in this room, by his spirit, standing, as it were, spiritually, inviting the rest of us to come to him. But in the original setting of Matthew's gospel, these are promises for Christians. So, this is going to sound like an evangelistic sermon. It is. But that means an evangelistic sermon for both Christians and non-Christians. Because you know where the power for witness comes from? It comes when we're standing inside the realities that Jesus is describing and pledging himself to provide in verses 28 through 30. You see, we will commend him to other people when we have found him gentle. When we have personally tasted his lowliness of heart we will rejoice in Him and commend Him to others only when and to the degree that we have experienced His rest. So friends, you and I, if we are not speaking of Christ, it's because we are not living with the treasure of being yoked to Him and learning from Him and feeling his gentleness upon us, and dealing kindly with us in our sins. Friends, we've got to crawl inside these verses if we're ever going to invite anyone else to come to Christ. And the wonder is that Jesus keeps pursuing us, that he keeps calling us to come to him this morning, Uh, Friends, it may be that you've wanted to throw the yoke of Christ off of yourself. Oh, I have such good news for you this morning. He's still gentle. He's still lowly in heart. He still comes, though he's the exalted king of the universe. He comes to meet you in your rebellion, in your hardness of heart. Let his softness this morning break your hardness. Take that yoke upon you again, and friends, you will find him to be true to his promises is an amazing thing that Jesus, as high as he is, would still be willing to stoop as low as he must in order to correct us, in order to teach us, in order to protect us, in order to provide rest for us. Friends, he calls us to take his yoke upon Him, uh, upon us because he has first taken our yoke upon him. He has yoked himself to us. That amazes me. I'm into the fourth page of my sermon. So what are the headings of the sermon? What are the headings for the first three pages that I just blasted by? Well, here's what I want to do this morning. Remember last week I said we're gonna look at the forest last week and this week and and then starting this week we're gonna start to look at some of the individual trees. Well the tree I wanna look at today is the this question. Why? Why is it that someone comes to Christ? Why is it that some What do we learn from this passage and the rest of scripture about why it is that when somebody when Jesus presents himself by his word and spirit to somebody whether it was in the first century or the 21st century when Jesus presents himself and says come to me why is it that someone comes? Next week, we're going to think about what it means to come. But this week, why do you come? And the reason is, is really in three parts. First, because He first comes to us, and that really is the sovereignty of, of Christ. And secondly, when He does come to us, He brings us two gifts The true knowledge of himself, the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the true knowledge of ourselves. Seeing him, we see ourselves. So first he comes to us, and when he comes to us, he brings the true knowledge of himself, and he brings us the true knowledge of ourselves. So let's look first at how he first comes to us. Why would anyone, friends, why would anyone give themselves away to Jesus Christ? as he has uh, called us to do in verse 28 and 29 and 30. Well, Jesus doesn't leave us any room to wonder about that. The answer is very plain. His logic in this passage is unmistakably clear. The only reason anyone comes to Christ is because Christ has first come to them. All grace... I'm going to say this multiple times, I think, this morning, and so you're going to hear this, but it's true. All grace is sovereign grace, or it is not grace. In other words, grace by definition is not a response on the part of God to some merit or some qualification in the recipient but all and only and totally and completely explicable, all as a matter of God's heart, period. God's initiative, period. And that's what we see here. According to Jesus, a conversion is a supernatural event. Now, that might sound like, you know, the craziest thing they have to say in a church. But friends, I see it in my own life. It is so easy to talk about conversion. Uh, Well, Jesus says, Jesus is showing us in this passage that conversion is a supernatural event and that it is impossible uh, for men. Impossible. And yet so often I find myself thinking and talking about conversion as though it were a natural event, So you could just reason somebody into the kingdom of God, and I am very vulnerable to thinking that, okay? I just confess that before you. I think that the force of ideas alone so often can just cause someone to yield to Christ. That's not biblical. And so often I think of conversion as something that's within the range of possibility of men's strength. And Jesus, friends, I'm just telling you that honestly as a pastor, okay? You know, if I didn't believe those things, if I, if I believed less in the ordinariness of conversion, I would pray more than I do. And I'd be more hopeful than I am. But you notice that Jesus is saying very clearly that conversion is impossible for men and it is the ultimate supernatural event. You, know, you notice something very interesting in this passage. It's very easy to miss. You know, The first time we ever hear Jesus pray in the Gospel of Matthew is in verses 25 through 27. He teaches his disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, but that's not his prayer. In verses 25 through 27, this is the first time we hear Jesus pray in the Gospel of Matthew. And what is this prayer about? Oh, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, the first time we hear Jesus pray in the Gospel of Matthew, he is worshiping his Father, Father for his sovereignty. And he is celebrating his own sovereignty in salvation. The first time we ever are given in Matthew's gospel a window into Jesus' own emotional life is in chapter 9, verse 36, when he looks at the crowds and has compassion on them. And the first time Jesus prays in the gospel of Matthew... He is praising God, his Father, for his sovereignty in salvation. You have hidden these things, and you have revealed these things. No one knows me except you, and no one knows you except me and anyone to whom I choose to reveal them. Friends, conversion is not Uh, is not by the will of man, it is by the power of God. It is not according to the ability of men, it is in fact the gracious conquest by God in his mercy of the ruined will of man, the will that has been destroyed by sin so that it doesn't want what it most needs and actually what it was made to most desire. St. Augustine, in the first sentence of his confession, says "You says to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And the way sin works on the will of a man is it says, you need to be restless, and I'm going to blind your heart, I'm going to deaden your heart, I'm going to darken your understanding, so that you will always turn everywhere else except to God for the rest that nothing in your life ever provides you. And the only possible rescue for man is not in the power of ideas or in the truthfulness of ideas. It is in the gracious power of God being brought to bear on a specific and particular individual. No one knows Jesus except those to whom Jesus chooses to reveal himself. First 27. Look at how he speaks. It has nothing to do with the ability of men. Look at verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from whom? From the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You see? Why? To show that, remember what I said at the beginning of the service, that God is this great reverser, that, that, that ultimately God is turning the values of the world on its head in the gospel because the, the central problem with man is his pride. And if the gospel was revealed to the wise and understanding and, and not to the little children who, by definition, right, do not they're just basically along for the ride. Sorry, kids. You're along for the ride. You don't contribute very much, especially when you're really small. Oh, but we love you. And our gifts to you are not a response, and our care for you is not a response to your merit or what you contribute to the family income or, or how you do the yard work. It's because we love you. See, it doesn't have anything to do with the ability of man. God chooses... To whom he's going to reveal, Jesus is celebrating that the Father reveals the truth about the Son, not to those who, who seem in the world's eyes to be capable or deserving, but precisely to those who can't give anything back. And Jesus picks up exactly the same theme in verse 28. Come to me, all you who... What? What? labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, it's not people who are strong. It's not people who have succeeded. It's not people who are successful. It's those who haven't. So conversion, by definition, can't be something that God is responding with to the ability or the qualifications of men. It's not a a reward for the ability of men. It's a remedy for the inability of men all grace is sovereign grace or it is not grace at all. Friends, men don't want to be saved and they can't be saved if God leaves them to themselves. And the wonder of the gospel, the the best news of the gospel is that God hasn't left us to ourselves. The world had rebelled against God and what what does John 3.16 tell us? Uh, God so loved the world, right, that had rebelled against Him that what did He do? He gave his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see that's God's initiative. That's God's ability. That's God's accomplishment. That is contraconditional to the world's attitude toward God. There's only one hero in salvation and it is God. The story, the wonder of conversion as Jesus shows us here in verses 25 through 27, the ultimate explanation for why anyone ultimately comes to Jesus Christ is found not in the heart of men, but in the heart of God. Not in the will of men, but in the willingness of God. Not in the power or ability or qualifications of men, but in the power and ability of God alone. And friends... You think I'm a Calvinist when I say these things. And you're right. But do you know why I'm saying the things I'm saying? It's because I'm a student of the cross. The reason the cross was necessary is because man could not save himself when he needed to be saved. The cross was not the result of a plebiscite on planet Earth. Oh, please save us. And here's how we would like you to do it, God. Please hear our prayer. Men needed a substitute. Men didn't want a substitute. Men didn't ask for a substitute. God had promised a substitute. God brought the substitute. God crucified the substitute. God raised the substitute. God gave the substitute back to the world that had rejected the substitute, Jesus Christ, in the offer of the gospel. Friends, only God can do this. And only God has. The cross tells us that much. Friends, it's an amazing thing to think about what it means to be a Christian. You've heard me say before that a Christian is the fourth most remarkable being in the universe, right? You're the fourth. You're not even on the Olympic platform. But it's, coo- it's really good to be the fourth. Because after the father, and after the Son and after the Holy Spirit, every Christian is the fourth most remarkable being in the universe because God's grace has taken you, who is a rebel against him and under his judgment, and, and whose will, your will was bent against God. And, and Lord, you know, you know, your will can be bent against God when you shake your fist or when you completely ignore God like he is, like Voyager 2, so far away, right? It takes like six light hours or 25 light hours, whatever it is, to get to you. God is so irrelevant to your life. Friends, that is hostility toward God. And what does God do? He moves toward you even when you're moving against Him. Friends, to be a Christian means that God's grace has broken into your life against your will initially, right? To renew you, to change you, not because you deserve it, but because He loves you and knows that only if your will is changed from the inside and you are renewed from the inside, what Jesus calls being born from above or born again, only then will you be able to come to the one answer for your needs before God, which is to come to Jesus. And so this is not a function. Uh, Your Christian identity is not a function of your brain or your intellect or your abilities. Friends, it's so much more beautiful than that. Now, I know that for some of you, because I've talked to you, some of you say, well, wait, wait, wait a second, Mike, if you believe that, I know you mentioned this last week, but if you believe that, then that means that, you know, if God is sovereign, that we don't need to share the gospel. Because God's going to do it anyway, right? God can never be defeated. Mike, you've said that God's, you told us Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. You've told us that God has said that his word never returns void. You've told us that the things that are impossible with men are possible with God and that God is never defeated. So if God is the one who has to do this, then I can just sit on my couch and watch TV and trust in the sovereignty of God. Do you notice that that is not how Jesus interprets the meaning of God's sovereignty, friends? He moves right from the celebration of the sovereignty of God in verses 25 through 27 He worships God for his sovereignty. There's a pattern here for us. He worships his Father because of his sovereignty in salvation. And what's his application? What does he go to do after he worships his Father for his sovereignty and salvation? He goes and he witnesses. You see that? It flows straight from worship before the sovereign God to the free offer of the gospel in verses 28 through 30. He looks at God, sees a sovereign God. And what's the application? He immediately looks out at the lost and says, Come to me. God uses people, friends. He uses people to rescue people. He uses people who are living inside the promise of Jesus' rest and living inside the promise of Jesus' kindness and his teaching, who are living in that relationship with Christ, who've yoked themselves to Christ and who know from their experience that he is faithful, that he is kind, that he is good, who know as sinners themselves who've been dealt with so kindly and so generously and so graciously by this mighty king who know that when they speak to other people about this gracious savior, they're not just repeating a canned formula. Jesus isn't building his church by hearsay. He's building it through direct testimony. And it is a wonderful thing. So worship to witness. That's Jesus's pattern. And when God comes, friends, when he comes, he comes with the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this sounds, I know, really basic. And, 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 but it's important to, to, to think this through. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to think, how do I explain this to you? Because this sounds, some of you are going to think this is going to sound touchy-feely. And I guess I, I'm willing to be uh, vulnerable to that charge. Uh, because it's very important for Jesus to not just be an abstract concept. You know, conversions are like fingerprints in the sense that they are ultimately totally unique. But there are also, across the lines of conversions, certain uh, characteristic commonalities that we see from Scripture that it is worthwhile to reflect on. And so how do you know how do you know when, so, when, when, when Jesus is choosing to reveal himself and his Father to you? How do you know? How does a person understand that, that they are being approached, if you will, uh, and enabled by the sovereign grace of God to respond to Jesus' call to come to him in verse 28? Well, I think there are three things that are very important always part of this. One is God's grace changes. We, we find that our knowledge of Jesus cha- has been changed by God's grace in three particular ways. Our knowledge of his person is changed, our knowledge of his cross is changed, and our knowledge of his crown is changed. And let me try to unpack these. First, the knowledge of his person. And what I mean by this is, okay, so, and this is, by the way, this is true, whether you're an adult convert like I was or whether you grew up as a covenant child inside a Christian home you'll know and the you'll know that God's grace is changing you when your understanding of and perception of Jesus as a person is being changed now ordinarily the knowledge of Jesus as a person is not given by a shaft of light or a supernova like it was for Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It doesn't normally happen that way. It does happen sometimes that way. But it doesn't ordinarily happen in a shaft of light. But it is light. It is light. A light that changes your sight. A light that changes the way you see Jesus. And the best way I know how to describe that to you is that Jesus goes suddenly, imperceptibly, it may be suddenly, it may be imperceptibly, gradually, but, but you realize that Jesus has gone from being a two-dimensional figure that you've heard about from history or maybe even in your previous reading of the Bible. He's a two-dimensional figure before, and the after is you suddenly discover that now he is a three-dimensional figure. And when you, this is particularly true when you read the Bible. There will be things. It's like somebody has put 3D glasses on your heart and things stand off the page at you. Things that you may have read before. Things that you may have heard before. Suddenly there is a, a 3D quality to these things. you think that happened because you got smart? Friends, that is the grace of God. Give Him glory for that. Don't you dare flatter yourself and say, well, I read the right book. No, you didn't. And suddenly Jesus is this presence. He's a reality. When you used to look at your life and you, you didn't think about him or, or you mostly just thought about him in a way that was very distant, now all of a sudden, everywhere you turn, you're aware of being in his presence now I remember how that happened for me Uh, I remember very specifically uh, the first time this started to dawn on me this was before my conversion but it was when God was drawing me and I was reading Psalm 139 why don't you turn there with me it's on page 521 in your pew bible uh, you suddenly realize that you've always been in his presence. And, and this psalm absolutely rocked my world in terms of what it pictured about uh, God and then what it meant for my life. Uh, page 521, verse 1. I just want to read verses 1 through 6 and have you think about the picture of God that emerges from these verses. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Do you know what the implication of these verses was in my life? That not only does God exist, but it means that there is no part of my life that doesn't belong to him, if this is true. It means that there's no part or moment of my life that is not to be yielded to him in worship. And I found that terrifying and comforting altogether. That God... Would bother to know my thoughts. Now, friends, if God is calling you, if His Spirit is working in your life, you're going to be aware of this presence. You'll be standing at the kitchen sink. You'll be aware that you're in his presence. You'll be at your desk at work. You'll be aware that you're in his presence. You'll be uh, driving in the car. You'll be aware that you're in his presence. You could be walking on campus. you will just be aware that there is a presence. You could be in an elevator. And there's a consciousness that in the very midst of what you thought was your life, you now have suddenly come to see is actually a life that belongs to the King of Heaven. And that knowledge that Jesus Christ is, is there, that you're in His presence, that is terrifying and beautiful and comforting all at once. It's like, you know, in the, how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? This may be the most famous. Oh, come on. Wow. Okay, I had to jackhammer you up. You remember when the kids are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, I can't, apo- I'm not, well, I'm not going to apologize for that. they are characters in the book. And they're talking about Aslan the king, and they're talking about wanting to see Aslan the king, and one of the kids says, well, is he a man? And the beavers, <laughs> you know, when they get done laughing, they know of course not, he's a lion. And then one of the kids asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about it? Safe, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Not safe, but good. Desirable and admirable all at the same time, you find yourself drawn to him. And what it means to be drawn to Jesus is you'll be drawn to his cross. You see, ultimately, it's not just the person of Jesus, but it's the work of Christ, and particularly his work on the cross. Friends, Jesus told us before he was crucified, in John 12, 32, he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. In other words, when I am crucified, I'm going to draw all people to myself. My cross is going to be the means by which I call people to myself. No one will come to me who does not come to me through my cross. And so an essential element of why someone will come to Christ is that God brings this true knowledge of Jesus Christ as a person and particularly that this person did this great work on the cross. You cannot separate the person of Jesus from his cross. And what happens is you begin to see that the cross is not only more personal than you had thought it was before, but also desperately necessary. And you will find, and personally necessary to you, you'll find suddenly that it makes sense to you why Christians are always talking about the cross and why the New Testament is always talking about the cross. Because if you're going to know God, do you remember how we've been thinking over the last several weeks that you know, for us as creatures to know God, that can never happen by our ascending to Him, to take knowledge of Him against His will. The distance between us as creatures and God as the creator is infinite. That chasm cannot be crossed by human strength or human exertion or human ability or by human desire. The only way that chasm can be crossed is by the power and willingness and desire of God. And that means that all true knowledge of God is the gift of God. That God must descend to us to give himself away to us in order for us to know him. And that means, friends, that that if the only way we know God is if he gives himself away to us, then the place in history and the place on earth where God has most given himself away to human beings is going to be the place where we know him most clearly. And that place is the cross of Jesus. See, if you want to know who God is, if you come uh, you know, as an inquirer about Christianity, and you say, I want to know who God is. What does the Bible tell me about God? Who is God? The Bible's answer is going to be let's go to Calvary, let's go to this hill outside Jerusalem. Let's think about the Roman punishment of crucifixion. Let's think about how in the Old Testament the curse of God was reserved for those who were hanged on a tree. Let's talk about the scandal of crucifixion in the ancient world. Let's talk about the cruelty of crucifixion in the ancient world. Wait, wait a second. I thought you wanted to tell me about God. My question was, who is God? And I say, yes. You can't know him unless you come with me to that hill outside of Jerusalem. That place that everyone overlooked that was near the garbage dump for Jerusalem, that is the place outside the camp, not in the center of the temple, not in the holy of holies, but in the unholy of unholies, on that cross, that is where the truth of God is to be known most fully. The most accurate picture of who God is is given to us on the cross because there, friends, there, friends we see more clearly than ever before that God is righteous and holy. That God was not going to pass over the sins of men. That the mesh of God's justice is infinitely fine, that there is no life, no person, no part of any life that will not be scrutinized and measured by the perfect justice of God. And so that's why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 3. Turn with me there, page 941. In your Pew Bible, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. That means declared right and accepted with God. Declared and are justified by his grace, right? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Notice this is all the initiative of God. Do you see what he's saying? whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The sacrifice was by God's design, the propitiation was by God's accomplishment, and He presents that finished work to us to be received by faith. Well, why did God send His Son to the cross? The second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. And just in case we didn't get it, Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. The cross is the story of God's righteousness. His justice is answered. And in the wonder of the cross, what we see, according to the Apostle Paul, is that justice of God that we had feared, that we had trembled before, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that justice of God actually now works for us. Isn't that incredible? That now, because Christ puts himself forward as a sacrifice, we rest on the full answer to God's justice, which is guaranteed by what? The justice of God. The wisdom of the cross is stunning. And so we see in Jesus and his cross the righteousness of God. But that's not all we see. Turn with me to chapter 5. And Romans. Starting at verse 6. <laughs> because the cross is also about the love of God. And these things are not in tension. They're not in competition. It's not a zero-sum game as though the more righteous the, the cross is, the less loving God is. No, 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 no. Both. The cross is the summit, the peak, the apex of the holiness of God and the love of God working together. Why? To, to manifest the full uh, panorama of God's perfections as He saves sinners in a way that upholds and vindicates His justice and in a way that shows His love like He has never shown it before to save unworthy, uh, rebellious sinners through the sacrifice of His innocent Son. Never has there been a love like that. Never has there been a love like that. Nor will there ever be. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, You see, what's going to happen is that Jesus brings you to himself. Jesus, and when he brings you to himself, he brings you to his cross. And you begin to see that the cross is the place where the righteousness of God answers for your unrighteousness, where the justice of God, instead of being your opponent now through Jesus Christ, is actually your servant, so that you as a Christian can say that God is just, like the Apostle John does. He is just, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, faithful and just. And you also see that what moved God to do this amazing thing was a love unlike any other love. That what we discover at the cross is the love we have been longing for all our lives. All our lives. It's a love. What we see at the cross is that only God has loved us with a love that will not recoil from the truth about us. <laughs> you understand that that's what the cross is saying to you? God is saying, you are ungodly. You were weak. You were sinners. You were in rebellion against me. I knew the full truth about you. And when you had nothing to offer me except your rejection of me and your rebellion against me, I loved you. I loved you knowing the full truth about you. I loved you with a love that was an everlasting love that triumphed over your rebellion against me that was not in any way proportional to your worthiness or your deservingness. I loved you with a love that did not recoil from the worst truth about you, and I've proven it in the giving of my Son, and Jesus has proven it in the enduring of my wrath in your place on the cross, my love will never recoil from you. And only there do we meet that love. That's why Jesus draws you. He wants you to meet that love. He wants you to be swept off your feet by that love, to have the love you've been searching for all your life that will not recoil from the truth of you about you and will never fail you. It didn't fail you at Calvary. It won't fail you in any other thing you face. Friends, do you believe that? Does't matter who's in the White House? Doesn't matter who's in charge of Congress. Doesn't matter what the unemployment rate is. Doesn't matter what the MRI shows. Doesn't matter what's in the bank account. Doesn't matter what other people think about you. That will never change. It is beyond the reach of men to change, but within the reach of men to receive by the grace of God. It is incredible. And 31 years in, it is deeper than it has ever been. It is more rich and beautiful than it has ever been. It is more restful and instructive to my soul. It is easier and lighter than it has ever been. Jesus does not grow dim with time. He grows brighter. Can I get an amen? And you know what's amazing? He comes with all of that while he wears a crown. So he's crucified and he's raised and he's exalted at the Father's right hand. And if you've come to Christ, if you've been met by Christ, you weren't met by the Jesus from the cross. You were met by Jesus who has come to you in the power of his spirit from his throne at the Father's right hand with everything subjected to him, having all authority in heaven and on earth. And that one still, with that power and that authority, listen, if he, had, he has no reason, there's no reason for one so high to pay attention to us. There's no reason for one so high, so mighty, so authoritative to track us down in the midst of our lives. Goodness gracious. And he comes with his crown to let us know about his father and to invite us in to come to him and to rest in his work. Friends, he finds us with his crown. If you had any doubts about the gentleness of Jesus Christ or the lowliness of heart that he has, it's, friends, the fact that anyone believes in Jesus Christ is proof that in all of his omnipotence, and all of his glory, how does he wield it towards sinners? He comes in kindness. And you know what happens? When he comes, we're, we're almost done. When he comes, he makes you alive. And in his light, you, you begin to see the light of who he is. You also finally can see yourself for who you really are. See, the reason I labored all, uh, all this sermon with trying to Help us understand who Jesus is, is because it's not until you see Jesus in his beauty, in his holiness, in his goodness, that you can begin to see yourself. See, I can call you to repent, I can explain what repentance is you know, that it's intellectual, it's volitional it's relational, it's God-centered. I can say all those things, and those are true biblical things, but you know know what the ultimate seedbed of repentance is? It's the beauty of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the...